Andrew, the saint whom we're celebrating today, is known as the first evangelist. In fact, in our portrait of Andrew that is contemporary art, it's been hard for me to, I don't love contemporary art most of the time, so I've, I've, got, I've warmed to Andrew over there. Uh, if you notice, he is calling, right? This, this, his hand has come here and his mouth is open. He's speaking, he's preaching the gospel. Uh, and also, obviously, there's a fish there um, because he is a fisherman and a fisher of men. He is known as the first evangelist, but we don't see that in our gospel lesson today. There are multiple different reasons why one gospel writer may put down one version of something or perhaps even a different instance of something in his written record, and another gospel writer will put another instance or version. Of course, it is not assumed that the gospel writers were trying to produce a transcript of everything Jesus said or did, as you might get in a uh, court document, right? Uh, what, what are they, a stenographer? Is that right? Just typing up every last word. St. Andrew, known as the first evangelist, comes from the gospel of St. John. This is why he's known as that. Um, and John's gospel is often quite different in tone and the episodes of Jesus' life chosen to represent in the gospel. St. John Baptist uh, in this one scene is with his disciples when Jesus, after his baptism by John, walked by or near them at least. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The disciples of John heard what John said about Jesus and the two disciples believed what he said and said, well, if that's the Lamb of God, we're following him. One of those disciples, the text says, is Andrew. The gospel writer is St. John, who does not tend to name himself in his own account. Scholars think that the other disciple in this story, the disciple of St. John Baptist, is St. John the Evangelist, the writer of our gospel. They came, those two, and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Is this important? I think it is, it, it, that it is for us at St. Andrew's Church, and I think it's important for the life of the entire church. As one scholar observes, in church history, St. Peter is everything, and St. Andrew is nothing in church history. But would there have been an Apostle Peter but for Andrew? Andrew has just come across the most amazing person he's ever met. In fact, he's convinced that this man is the Christ, the Messiah of God, the chosen one for whom the whole Jewish world has been waiting for centuries. We have found the Messiah, he says to Peter. That's a pretty big statement. 
Peter and Andrew are brothers and run the family fishing business. John is also a fisherman and with his brother James doing the same thing. They might have all been partners or in cahoots in business a little bit too. But on this day, at least two of them, two of those fishermen are taking a break from work and listening to John Baptist. Likely, their brothers are with them. They might have been a little perturbed trying to do the fishing by themselves. Peter was probably not far to be found. Our scholar makes another observation important to us this morning. Andrew is described on two additional occasions as bringing others to Jesus. Here, the rapidity and depth of his convictions are noted. Andrew quickly becomes a key evangelist in the new outfit. We see him three times making connections between people looking for the Messiah and the master of the Messiah himself. Our gospel lesson this morning shows us Jesus walking by Simon and Peter as they are fishing offshore. I imagine, uh, I imagine, it's imagination, a bit of speculation, but I imagine that the boys have gone back to work because that's what they need to do. That's what their life is. Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee sees them casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Note the immediate following. Let's please keep all of this in mind as we look at the epistle lesson this morning, which is found on page 763 of your pew Bibles in front of you. It's the 10th chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning at verse 9. St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, or page 763 of the pew Bibles. Allow me, if you will, to emphasize a few key verses throughout that reading by reading just those verses that I want to emphasize. And if you will, skim along with me and skipping the other verses. Just kind of skip down to the next quote that I give. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Summary. Belief in the Messiah, the Christ, and his resurrection is obviously very important. This is a major means of salvation. Calling on the name of the Lord is another verb having to do with belief and this salvation. But hearing this good news of the Messiah is also very important. Otherwise, how will people know of this good news? And who will tell them if no one is sent to tell them? Kind of like, you know, duh, rhetorical question. The bearer of the good news is beautiful to them that hear the good news and receive the good news. Those who activate that hearing with the verbs from earlier in the passage, 
Those verbs are only able to be activated when the good news of God's revelation in Jesus Christ and in the Gospels and in his Holy Scripture is heard. Let's reverse the whole structure a bit. The revelation of Christ, the Messiah, the incarnation itself, and the written word of the incarnation, i.e. the Gospels, and indeed the whole written revelation of God, must be spoken to the world. Obviously, from our text, we see that there must be preachers of this word, preachers that are sent, and the church has been doing that formally for many, many centuries, from the beginning. Preachers that are sent to literally preach in a church service, to preach out in the wilderness. Remember that uh, going back into the history of the English church, we visited, can't remember the name of the church, and you guys weren't with me, but you, you were, probably, maybe. Um, we went to one of these very old churches built in about 600, and the altar cross dates from the 400s, 500s. Because, and it's a stone cross, because before you had a church in the village, you had a preaching cross. And the preachers, i.e. priests or deacons, usually, would be sent on a circuit to that village and would preach the gospel at the cross until there were enough people to form a church. And maybe they had a church, they would still preach from the cross. And then they would finally build a building. Um, by the way, this one uh, stone building built in 600, give or take, is built on St. Patrick's model. Um, it's using, of course, Roman stone from a uh, fort nearby. So up until recently, you could read the legionnaires' uh, uh, names and numbers on it. And, and then just, just for historical aside, the Victorians said, oh, we need a better church. Get rid of this old thing. We don't want to do it. So they abandoned the church, built a brand new church. It leaked from day one. They couldn't fix it. They couldn't. Basically, that church no longer exists. Within 100 years, they were back at the old church built in 600. Um, that's one of my favorite little historical stories. Um, so preachers are sent. Yet, there are multiple, multiple ways that God accomplishes this speaking of the word, speaking of the truth and the gospel beyond formal preachers. And mostly, of course, through his church again, not the preacher this time, but the people. Yes, preachers and evangelists may be really good at this, but everyone can and does throughout history, share the good news. It is literally written, not in the gospel in this case, but in, say, published articles, in letters to friends and relatives. It is spoken through relationship and friendship, sung in praise to God, both just in everyday life and in formal worship. And the list of how this happened goes on happens, goes on and on. This revelation of Christ is sometimes laid out clearly to someone who has asked you to do that for them. They've asked you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Quite often and probably the most powerful, the gospel is spoken to our neighbors just through our everyday living in joy and in peace 
and in hope and laughter and fasting and make merry, making merry and feasting. Living life with Jesus in his church <clears throat> is arguably the most effective way of speaking to our neighbor over the long haul. But we can't just do that. Quite often people are interested in why you live life this way. I would say that in today's culture, more than ever, people are at least going to be intrigued. Maybe they don't want to know that much, but they can tell you're living a very different sort of life when you're involved in the church, and particularly a traditional church. You might have to reach out of your comfort zone and begin the conversation, make an open pathway for them to ask you why. You might have to reach out and befriend them, love them, open the door for them. This answers the question St. Paul poses, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Well, by us reaching beyond our comfort zone. The verbs at the beginning of this section of the epistle are important. We get three of them. Confess, believe, and call. Confession is a verbal statement of belief or sometimes an action of belief that uh, sometimes an action of belief if you were, say, mute. If literally you couldn't speak. It might be an action that you give. You know, people that are mute can still become Christians, right? You don't have to verbally confess and you're out, you're out if you can't. The most obvious example of this from the earliest times was a statement of one's belief by reciting the Apostles' Creed at your baptism. This was and is the baptismal creed of the church. That which is believed in order to be baptized. This is what you're saying when you get baptized. So if you happen to not have a tongue, which I'm sure back in that day more often happened more often than today, you would give your nod of assent to the creed and go into the water, right? So there is a verbal, active acknowledgement of the basics of the faith, if you will, in Christ Jesus and his death and resurrection from the dead for our sakes. Believing is the interaction of that confession. It is the heart agreeing with our minds and our mouths about this reality. It is a part of faith and necessary. The verb to call, the calling in our text, seems to be a bit harder one for our culture because we are unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and also used in the New, not surprisingly, the phrase calling on the name of the Lord is used to refer specifically to worship, formal worship. Abraham went out, he was called out of the land of Ur, and he periodically makes an altar. And he stacks up stones. And the text says, and he called or calls on the name of the Lord. In other words, by our faith and our confession, we enter into the body of Christ by baptism, a worship service, by the way. And then we regularly come together to worship God, to call upon his name 
every Sunday and on feast days, if possible, and if possible, even every day with the body of believers. And if not possible, then by ourselves joining with that great throng of believers worshiping God on earth and in heaven. But perhaps by ourselves on our knees at our pray do our prayer desk or in our prayer closet. We are literally to call people to the regular and habitual worship of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's what evangelism is, is to bring others into this space with us, to do this with us. We have a mission. We have a calling to call in the name of the Lord and a calling to call the world to do it with us. That's what Andrew was about. This is the way of joy and peace and hope and laughter and fasting and making merry with feasting, all in real community, with real people, really engaging in the real God of the universe. No, it can't happen on the internet. It cannot happen on Facebook. It cannot happen on live stream. My friends, let's be busy and make connections between searchers and Jesus, just like our patron saint is noted as doing. Let's imitate the first evangelist and be open to the opportunities the Holy Spirit will give us to speak of our faith. Let's not be afraid to invite others to join in this amazing opportunity to know God, to be healed of our sin and brokenness, to worship, grow in faith, and to serve our community and our neighbors. There's never I'm making a big statement. There's never been a greater need for the gospel in our country and culture than there is right now. Let's meet that need. Amen.